1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Noah Weisbord about his book, The Crime of Aggression, The Quest for Justice in an Age of Drones, Cyberattacks, Insurgents, and Autocrats, published by Princeton University Press in June of 2019. Noah, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Jeff. What a pleasure to be here with you.
1: And thank you for joining me. And can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I got into the crime of aggression while I was an intern at the International Criminal Court. Um, I was uh, trolling around for a dissertation topic. I hear some yelling outside the office, and it's the prosecutor of the court, Luis Moreno Ocampo, and he's just getting yelled at by a five foot tall, eighty four year old man. Uh, named Ben Ferenz, and the prosecutor beckons me over to see what's going on. And Beren- Ferenz turns the guns on me and he said, why aren't you screaming? Why aren't you yelling? This is the job for the young people to do. And, and, and what he's referring to was that the United States had just um, uh, tried to prevent the inclusion of the crime of aggression into the new International Criminal Court Treaty, uh, and they had just invaded Iraq. And Ferenc, as being the last living Nuremberg prosecutor, was just livid that they had turned their back on the Nuremberg precedent, one of the great legal innovations of the United States, in his view. So um, that, that's how I kind of got into this, this subject.
1: Thanks, Noah. And um, I, because we don't get to it too much in the, the rest of the interview, um, are there any other personal experiences that you have that uh, that influenced you know your thinking and your your interest in this? I know in the book it, you talk a little bit about going to Rwanda for the the local courts there after the genocide. Um are there other personal experiences that you had?
2: Yeah, I come kind of at this from a social work standpoint. Um, I had a great professor of social work who was an expert in psychotherapy with involuntary uh, clients, people that were kind of court mandated to be in there, you know, um, and especially with um, people that had uh, committed crimes against children, sexual crimes against children. And she pointed out that the greatest kind of experiment in involuntary psychotherapy was taking place in Rwanda. This was the early, late 1990s, early 2000s, after the genocide, where everybody in the entire country was being forced to um, being required by law to participate in this justice therapy process called gachacha, where um, the communities would sit in judgment of members of their own community for having committed crimes during the genocide. And they had the power of courts to just release these community members back into the community uh, or to send them back to these substandard uh, Rwandese prisons, uh, sometimes for the rest of their lives. So I sat in on these uh, um, kind of justice healing experiments, um, and I started to realize that there was a big kind of human dimension, psychological dimension, and wonder what law can do, uh, wh- whether it could accomplish justice and healing, and whether these these two concepts were in fact compatible at all.
1: Thank you. Um, it's very interesting. Um And I mean, I suppose a question I have about these experiences that you had is um, whether you're an optimist or maybe a pessimist or somewhere in between, Um, you know, I would describe myself as a skeptical optimist. Uh, I don't think I would do the work I do if I was simply pessimistic, Uh, but I'm a little skeptical about what can be accomplished without fairly drastic shifts in terms of what I believe to be the impunity some states are able to operate with. This is something I kind of, been, um, I don't know, I, I get stuck on. And so uh, you know, next year, I have a book coming out, which I hope will successfully demonstrate the ways the major powers have insulated themselves against accountability for the crime of genocide. And so yeah, back to the the question. Um, you know, are what about you? Are you an optimist, a pessimist? Uh, you know, in your book, you write, "quote The hidden strength of the crime of aggression lies not with a court in The Hague or the UN Security Council, but in the way in which its existence reframes international politics." And and I think this sounds optimistic. So, yeah, I'll yeah, turn it over to you. <laughs> I, I,
2: I think I'd rather ask you. You know, after what you just said about looking at impunity from the leaders of major powers for uh, um, you know atrocity crimes. How is it that you can stay optimistic at all? You know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in, but I'm 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 interested in in how you can remain optimistic in light of that.
1: That's that's interesting. Um, I I think the optimism part of it rests in what I hope are. Um, evolutions or progressions in international law and its application. And I'm thinking about the potential role the international court of justice can play, uh, like the Gambia versus Myanmar case gives me, uh, some hope. Um, although, you know, I think as a, you know, in in terms of the major powers, um, It's not simply uh, accountability for uh, crimes they might commit against their own people, but also for how they contribute to uh, criminal acts of other states. And um, you know, I've written a bit about um, you know U.S. support for Saudi Arabia and and the coalition in Yemen, uh, and even the debates in the Congress. And um, so, it gives me some some mixed uh, feelings about you know optimism versus uh, pessimism. Um, But I think more specifically you know as a, as a teacher as an instructor at a university um, engaging with young people also gives me optimism um, because of the things that I hear and the discussions we have in the classroom but then of course there are the you know some of the skepticism creeps in uh, when I think about um You know, how even considering, say, Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent and sort of the culture of institutions, and even when people who mean well and um, get into, say, government positions, but then the sort of institutions alter in some ways, or potentially alter in some ways. how their approach was when they first got into when they are actually sort of in within the institution. So, um, I guess I could, the the short answer to the question might be that I'm sort of torn between these different feelings.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the answer that someone gives to this question depends a lot on their theory of history. You know, is, is history a mountain to climb? Is it a, you know, two steps forward, one step back? Is it a cycle where these themes keep repeating? Is it a pendulum, you know, that's swinging between right and left or optimism and pessimism? Or is it just nothing? Is it just where this is just some overlaid story that we're we're, we're putting on top of a bunch of events that have no meaning uh, in themselves? Um, I, I guess my answer to your question about optimism and pessimism is that I am, this book is a, one of the major themes running through it is an attack on cynicism. It's it's not exactly answering your question, but what I've found is that um, the cynics um, are deriding all of these legal attempts that you're mentioning and, you know, creation of new institutions, creation of new standards and rules, uh, um, uh, agreed upon um, realities. Uh, they're, they're deriding them and calling the people like Forens that are trying to create... Um, a better civilization dreamers, a- and they they say that you know their big thing is to not be fooled and not to look foolish. The cynics, but they are submitting ultimately. Their their pretense that it's all corrupt actually exoriates. Uh, um, pre- it's pretending to exoriate what it ultimately excuses. So it's pretending to be an attack on power. This mode of cynicism. But it's ultimately excusing power because nothing is of any use to do it all. That's what this book is. It's an attack on that. It's an attack on that posture.
1: And when you, I don't know if you want to name names, but uh, when you're thinking of the cynics, I mean, what came to my mind was uh, someone like Eric Posner and the Twilight of human rights law. Is, is that sort of the school of thought you're, you're thinking about when you refer to the cynics?
2: I would say it's uh, the realists uh, a lot of the time. Um, So saying that there's no point in making uh, any shared uh, institutions or agreements um, that, uh, you know, it's like Thucydides, you know, the strong do what they will and the weak accept what they must. And the cynics say, you know, that's what you have to understand. But what that's doing is that's excusing the strong for what they are doing. It may be descriptively Uh, accurate in their view, but I don't think it matches with history. It's a massive overgeneralization, a a very, very dark pessimistic generalization that is disconnected from reality. I think it's, and what it does is it just, uh, what is it? Are they, are they protecting their feelings, their expectations? Are they trying to look savvy? What does this do except uh, reinforce the status quo?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Um, And, uh, Yeah. I wanted to spend a little bit more time on, on, on Benjamin Ferenz and, uh, you know, you mentioned how you had a chance to, to meet him. Um, can you tell our listeners maybe a bit, a bit more about Friends? um, you know, who also makes uh, many appearances throughout your book and how he influenced you and your work. And I'll make a quick note for listeners. If they haven't seen Watchers of the Sky, um, there's a bunch of interviews with friends throughout um, that really show uh, the kind of person he was, or he is, because he's now, I think, 101, I think is uh, how old he is. Um, But uh, yeah, I'll turn it back over to you.
2: I mean, uh, Ferenc was, back to this discussion of optimism and pessimism, Ferenc is kind of a driving motor of optimism uh, in international law. And a lot of, you know, I I counter, I I kind of set him against Henry Kissinger, who's kind of a cynical, realist view. And these two men were both Jewish men born in the ruins of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they escaped uh, Europe, um, uh, uh, you know, anti-Semitic persecution, and they came to completely different lessons where Forens, and they both grew up in, in New York City, and you know, Forens from a poor family and Kissinger from kind of a cultured, uh, um, uh, um, in certain ways, privileged family, not not rich. But, you know, Kissinger came to the conclusion that you need to counter force with force. That was the, the, the main language. That was the main dynamic. And Forens believed in logic and reason and law, and um, he, he fought diplomatically, you know. After first being a soldier, so he was at Harvard Law School. He was working for a law professor studying accountability for international crimes, and then he left in order to fight in um, World War II, where he wanted to fight on the on the front lines. But he was too small, and he had some other physical issues that prevented him. So they had him doing intelligence and. You know, he was liberating concentration camps. He was so he saw these atrocities, and to this day, if you speak with him about the camps, uh, he he will cry. He's he's still deeply affected. I think traumatized by his experiences. When he came out of that, he was assigned to prosecute the Nazis um, under Telford Taylor, who was the American prosecutor at the time. And he found a trove of documents. His team and his team found a trove of documents uh, underground that implicated the Einsatzgruppen, the mobile death squads that would round up Jews and gypsies and disabled people and kill them behind enemy lines. And Feren said that we need to do another case. I found direct connections, documentary evidence that these particular men had committed, um, I think around 20 men, uh, over a million murders. And Telford Taylor said, well, you can't do it. We don't have enough staff. And then he assigned... Forens, if he was willing to do it, to do the prosecution, and Forens prosecuted the biggest murder trial in history, over a million uh, uh, victims. Uh, when he was 27 years old, uh, secured convictions. Amazing story, and then spent the rest of his life trying to build international institutions to prevent this from happening again. So he was kind of the the the, the lodestar of this book, where he's he's realistic, but also kind of this engine of optimism, uh, behind it all.
1: Thanks, Noah. And I mean, that really, I think it, in some ways that brings me back to, uh, to 1946, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, what led to friends needing to continue, um, on the, you know, it, with his efforts, uh, you know, in the Nuremberg Judgment in 46, uh, it says, quote, to initiate a war of aggression is the supreme international crime differing only from other war crimes in that it contains within it itself the accumulated evil of the whole. And, um, you know, I've talked about Dirk Moses's book and a few times on here, including interviewing him, um, but he has this book called The Problems of Genocide. And he talks about what he sees as the existence of a hierarchy. And I tend to agree of international crimes with genocide as the crime of crimes. Um, do you think there is such an international criminal hierarchy? And how did, if you do, how did wars of aggression or the crime of aggression seem to have been, I don't know, placed lower on the hierarchy? Or I, I don't really know the best way to describe it. Um But uh, yeah, I'll I'll stop there because you probably have uh, something to say there. (laughs) I
2: I need to ask you a follow up, though, is why do you think that genocide is the supreme crime? Why why do you think that that's more more serious than uh, crimes against humanity or any of the others? I
1: I mean, I don't want to say that I do. um, Just for clarification in case... you know, I think that it's treated in that manner, both in terms of when we uh, think about Security Council action. Um, even though it's very mixed, um, prevented efforts, um, discussion of potential prevention, prevented options, uh, early warning signs, uh, prosecution. It seems that you know, the way genocide is treated uh, within international institutions is. Um, Different, I'd say, if and I would certainly, I think, elevated uh, in comparison to uh, war crimes, especially.
2: I mean, I think you're right that it's treated, and and people that are suffering from attacks by government forces or organized bands want their um, uh, situations to be labeled genocide. So you're onto something there. Uh, They they want that over crimes against humanity. They want it to be because they feel that that's a more uh, serious uh, crime. But at the time of the uh, you know, Second World War, the primary consideration, at least of the United States, was um, the attack uh, on Pearl Harbor uh, and of Europe, of the invasions uh, of the Nazis, of uh, taking over all of Europe. And, you know, the, the, the stuff that happened within the states that were occupied or behind enemy lines, that was considered to be kind of, you can see it in the quote that you just read me a byproduct of the illegal war. I don't think that the crime of aggression is a supreme international crime, but it was treated that way in the way that the prosecutors at Nuremberg um, designed their indictment and the way that they prosecuted. They used conspiracy to commit aggression, a crime against peace, it was called at the time, mm-hmm. to link in all of these Nazi leaders uh, and to show how the all of these atrocities were committed towards a larger war effort to uh, create more living space for Germans uh, and to to seize territory. So, it would, Robert Jackson, the American prosecutor, the Supreme Court judge who became the chief American prosecutor of the international military trial at Nuremberg, um, uh, designed the entire case around aggression. It need not be so. But back to your genocide point. You know, you're you're trying to make a book about the links between genocide and warfare. But don't you think that there's some sort of psychological dimension, this creating an other group in order to mobilize a population to action? Don't you think that aggression, where maybe it's one nation attacking another, uh, um, you know, or Rwanda, the Rwanda genocide, where it's the, you know, the Hutu were very divided in the early 1990s, are unified and brought together again through an attack on the Tutsi. There must be some psychological, some social psychological connections there. That maybe you could you could tell me about that a little.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. Because I, I don't I don't want in any way want to um, seem like I am uh, minimizing any uh, any of these international crimes. Um, you know the, these attacks on, on groups and the way that those who uh, both organize plan and incite the violence um, are using I, I think uh, manipulative ways to convince um, some members of a population that other members of the population must be killed for their own uh, benefit security or you know whatever um, you know they the uh, they use to incite the violence. Um, you know, in Rwanda, you know, one aspect was, um, based on, um, the history of the country that, uh, you know, that the Tutsi, if we don't kill them, they're going to kill us. Um, and then, you know, using that to, um, manipulate people, um, I, I, think a concern I, I have is that, um. You know, if we treat some crimes differently than others, when the victims of the crimes um, are largely civilian populations, that are we? I guess like the the question I am hoping to answer in the you know the project that you mentioned, the war and genocide, is are we elevating some human suffering over other human suffering? and I know there's different, you know, grades, uh, there's different scales, there's different severity, but I think of the the conflict in Yemen and civilian life that has been lost. Um, is that any, are those lives any less significant as, uh, you know, victims of, of genocide? And um, I'm not saying, I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's complicated, um, but at the same time, it's also simple, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
2: It is, yeah, and you can hear here. I have a quote here from Hermann Goering, who's being interviewed by his prison psychologist, um, and he's he's trying to explain kind of the the um, um, the the kind of the role of leaders in bringing their populations to war, and it applies to both genocide and to uh, aggression. Um, so the psychologist challenges Goering. He says, "This is uh, Gilbert, his psycho- Gustav Gilbert, the psychologist for Goering." He says. Well, you know, it's maybe easy for leaders to bring their populations to war in Germany and other totalitarian places. But what about democracies where the people have a say? Here's Goering's response: Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them that they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country, and this is what the Einsatzgruppen leader told Benjamin Forens, the, the main kind of defendant in the Einsatzgruppen group in cases, why, why were you killing the, the Jews, asked Forens. And, you know, um, uh, um, the um group and commander said, well, if we didn't kill them, they were going to kill us. And then Forens said, well, what about the children? And then the leader said, well, they're going to grow up and having seen what happened to their parents, they were going to come back and get us. It was preemptive self-defense said this is the same justification in Rwanda for killing mm-hmm. the, the the Tutsi this is what was being shouted on radio de milklin mm-hmm. so there's patterns of this kind of um, uh, you know the security argumentation mm-hmm.
1: yeah and we've seen I think similar things with uh, with Israel and Palestine um you know, about the idea that they're going to be raised to, to hate us. Um, mm-hmm. I believe there are similar things with, um, or the way, uh, people, uh, members of Al Qaeda were, um, were talked about as well. Um, or uh, in places like Afghanistan, Iraq that, you know, they're going to hate us. And so we have to bring, you know, essentially, you know, the, the war to them or the, Um, the use of force to them.
2: Yes. Um, Jeff, can I tie this in for a second? Look at what's happening in in these self-defense cases going on. Uh, Ahmed Arbery, um, uh, um, Kyle Rittenhouse, Mm -hmm. um, all of these people are um, doing preemptive strikes and then claiming self-defense that they were threatened. And then when the the prosecutor argues, well, you were armed and the other person was not armed. They say, well, if I didn't do it, they were going to take my armament. They were going to, what's happening is that there's a reappraisal of the concept of self-defense, a renegotiation that's going on right now in domestic law, but also in international law, crime and aggression, and also for these genocide arguments. You can see it with the um, Myanmar case that you were referring to before, where these leaders are claiming constantly self-defense, and we need a legal standard. This is an example of, against cynicism. We need a legal standard where we can draw a line. It doesn't have to be a perfectly clear line, but just to debunk these gaslighting arguments that, um, uh, that something is self-defense, like the killing of uh, Ahmed Arbery, um, uh, when it's obviously an act of aggression. Mm-hmm. So there's a, lo- there's a larger thing going on now where we need to come to some agreement about what amounts to a legitimate uh, um, defensive action against yourself or your people.
1: Yeah. And um, in that latter case, uh, I would say, fortunately, um, the court got it right. Um, But that does relate to a a larger question that I wanted to ask you about. And that is, uh, you know, in your chapter, Cold War, you said Bellum, uh, you quote Forenza saying that, quote, it was clear that it was easier to commit aggression than to define it. And I was thinking about that, you know, quote, and then, you know, what you just said. And it, Makes me wonder whether it's clear that it's easier to commit aggression than to hold those responsible accountable, um, because they don't. We don't always hold every hold those responsible accountable.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, there's two things in that question. Uh, um, so it talks about that. You know, raises issues in two of my chapters. First one relates to the definition of aggression and the distinction between aggression and self-defense. The second one is how do you arrest somebody? How do you actually um, capture a head of state? And I have an entire chapter that just describes arrest scenarios, successful arrest scenarios. People always say that international law, international criminal law is ineffective. But when you read this chapter, you'll see that most of the Yugoslav criminals, around 160-something Yugoslav criminals that were originally indicted for crimes in the former Yugoslavia, were captured in these sometimes spectacular arrest operations uh, and killed or tried. Um, uh, um, or they handed themselves in. And almost the same in Rwanda, with the Rwanda Tribunal. Um, so not everybody is getting captured at, at the International Criminal Court who they want. You know, the Lord's Resistance Army um, uh, um, people run by Joseph Kony that were committing atrocities in Ituri, I mean, in um, uh, um, Northern Uganda and in Congo and places like this. Not all of them were captured, but most of them were killed and some of them were tried. Um, so I, I think if you read this chapter, you'll see that there are potential using, you know, state forces, um, you know, Bagbo arrest is a very good example with French forces, um, subterfuge, like the arrest of, uh, Bemba in Belgium by Belgian authorities, sometimes bounty hunters are used and they hand over, um, the people to the international criminal court, uh, sometimes peacekeepers. So uh, the possibility of arresting a single person versus targeting an entire state for regulation creates new possibilities, and, and privateers are starting to come up, which is an interesting but dangerous possibility. Private military contractors. Mm-hmm. So that's my hope for arrests is is in these interstices, in a way, mm-hmm. um, with the definition. I don't want to go on and on about, the, about this, <laughs> but the, the, the main idea is that its first strike um, is the main uh, um, concept. Uh, there's a list of acts that amount to acts of aggression, bombardment, blockade, attacking the armed forces of another state. Um, and these all come from the Nuremberg precedent and some other international legal sources that are authoritative and m- many of them customary international law. Uh, So these were used like building blocks to build the crime of aggression. Um, And then there's a qualifier called the manifest qualifier, which says that only the most serious uses of force are going to be prosecutable as aggression. Um, That's where a lot of the play is in defining something as aggression or not, is that whether by its character, gravity and scale, it amounts to uh, uh, a manifest violation of the UN Charter.
1: Thanks, Noah. And that, uh, you know, the, 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 definition does lead me to a question I have about, uh, the role of, the, uh, us actors, officials that you, um, uh, alluded to earlier. Um, you know, it seems to me that the Kampala amendment really borrowed a lot from the 1974 general assembly resolution defining aggression. And so, you know, when the Rome statute was negotiated, there was this definition readily available. Um, but you mentioned how us officials, um, we're seeking to work against inclusion of the crime of aggression. And in your book, you talk a little bit about compare, you compare uh, Bush, Obama, and Trump, their administrations. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the differences and similarities? And then if you happen to know anything about, um, if you've been keeping up with the Biden administration, whether there's anything new that's come since your book.
2: Yeah. Yeah. um, For sure. So the Bush administration did kind of a full on attack on, the international criminal court and international law this was in the early 2000s you know it was john bolton who was in charge of that he famously unsigned the rome treaty the international criminal court treaty i don't even know if that's possible to do what legal effect that might have you know clinton had signed it in 1998 but they hadn't been able to push it through the senate mm-hmm. so it had kind of created certain legal obligations just by the executive having signed but um So there was a frontal assault. And then in the second term of the Bush administration, that had started to harm George Bush in the war on terror because many states were not cooperating with the United States in the war on terror because of their position on the international criminal court. Um, And he dialed it back and um, uh, they appointed John Bellinger III, who was a very savvy, uh, excellent international lawyer um, to kind of, engage with the international criminal court and help behind the scenes. So the United States became in the second term of the Bush administration, kind of actually helpful. They didn't block the Sudan referral when the security council was deciding whether to um, refer uh, Sudan to the international criminal court to prosecute Omar al Bashir and other leaders. And they passed intelligence on, I believe, to the international criminal court. Obama, was a much more complicated relationship. Um, He believed that uh, the United States would be stronger by kind of entrenching its view of the world within international law. So he tried at every possibility to justify his uses of force under existing international law. And they would do creative interpretations to allow uses of force in that would clearly be aggression but they tried to argue them in legal terms, even though they were sometimes weak arguments. And the best example here is um, the Islamic State coming through Syria, attacking Iraq. Uh, and the um, there being uh, um, no Security Council resolution allowing the United States to use force in Syria against the Islamic State. Uh, so they use a collective self-defense argument, Samantha Power Uh, submitted this to the United Nations, saying that we're acting to defend Iraq in collective self-defense against a non-state aggressor um, that a state is unwilling or unable to control. That's Syria, unable and unwilling to control. So they cooked up another justification for the use of force that could then be handed as a precedent to other states. So it it was a more complex uh, relationship. You need a court or courts to judge whether these legal justifications are legitimate or not. That's what's needed now. Mm
1: -hmm. And what about drone strikes? Um, where do you, how, how do you think about drone strikes? Uh, you know, there's some concern, uh, that the emergence of drones as a regular tool of use of force, um, can create not necessarily, uh, the sort of full scale, uh, wars that we've seen, especially in the 20th century, but, a, a sort of continuous low level of conflict based on, uh, the lack of political and, um, and, you know, human risk, uh, at least on this side, using the drones. Um, does this complicate, uh, the crime of aggression at all? It's it's
2: so interesting the the drone and the cyber attack um, developments are so interesting because kind of at a larger level I'll get to your your more specific question in a sec but at a larger level these are technological attempts in a way to um, to navigate the legal terrain when it comes to uh, you know the law of war these are kind of low level strikes, drone strikes, cyber attacks that don't trigger the law of war and the right of forcible self-defense if done just below the de minimis threshold. So in a way, um, states were trying to devise through technology a way to wage war uh, that would not um, um, turn the diplomatic and um, kind of political forces against them in their wars. They're sanitized wars in a way. Drone strikes are supposed to be very specific. Smart weapons just hit an individual. Uh, Maybe not give rise to a Security Council condemnation. Maybe not give rise to diplomatic sanctions by states that were against that particular use of force. So you can see lawfare coming into play with these new technologies where, um, you know, the legal terrain is just like a physical terrain that militaries are trying to navigate. Uh, And... um, yeah. So the big issue here is when a low-level use of force, like the targeted assassination of a General Suleimani, for example, Iranian general, um, triggers a right of forcible self-defense. Uh, and when it becomes the crime of aggression, and because of the way that the crime of aggression has been defined, where only a manifest violation of the UN Charter, that by its character, gravity, and scale... Um, amounts to um, you know a, a violation of the UN charter well, only that is going to trigger the legal regime um, so these low level strikes may fall below it we need the court to judge what amounts to aggression that's what's necessary
1: thanks Noah um and that, I think we'll, we'll get back to uh the who should be judge uh in a moment um but uh you know, I'm very interested in, there's an exercise I do with my my students, um, about operationalizing, um, you know, the crime of aggression, um, and, you know, defining the differences or recognizing, um, when a use of force is one thing versus another and who should be the judge and so on and so forth. And, um, so I guess my question to you is, you know, can the crime of aggression be effectively operationalized, uh, you know, in your book, you identify some hurdles. Um, and so I was wondering if you could describe uh, the three potentially contentious zones of interpretation that ICG- ICC judges face. Um, some related questions, uh, sorry, there's going to bunch all in one here is, is it difficult to distinguish between aggression, uh, self-defense, uh, both traditional and preemptive, which has come up? And military intervention for real or perceived humanitarian purposes. Uh, and, you know, and associated with that, there are, uh, if you look at the example of Kosovo in 1999, uh, a legitimate but technically illegal use of force, does this still fall under uh, the crime of aggression for judging? Uh, and then finally, connected to intervening uses of force, can something that began as humanitarian morph into aggression? Uh, and I'm thinking, as an example, the intervention in Libya, where some, I would argue that I, that the intervention exceeded the initial mandate, and then does the question of aggression come into play? Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, great. Okay. Yeah, I think I can divide your question into two parts. Um, uh, so you asked me kind of, where are these zones of contestation? Where is the most controversial part of the crime of aggression, what uses of force are going to be the most controversial and hard to resolve? And you're exactly right. It's going to be self-defense and humanitarian intervention. Those are going to be the two most tricky scenarios. And also, I would add now what we were just talking about, these low-level uses of force, like a cyber attack that doesn't damage um, property or kill any people directly, but, for example, deletes medical records, causing death. So these de minimis. forms. So for self-defense, the law is actually uh, rather clear for the most part on self-defense. Everyone has tried to blur it. All these political actors have tried to blur it. But under Article 51 of the UN Charter, you need an armed attack to trigger the right of self-defense. So you can't strike in defensive force under international law uh, unless the armed attack has occurred. So, you know, a preemptive strike like the invasion of Iraq in two thousand three would not qualify um, as self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when the this is where there's the zone of interpretation. When has the attack occurred? So, if you think of Pearl Harbor, has the attack occurred when the missiles have landed in Pearl Harbor? Yes, for sure. That that's uncontroversial. What about when the boats? or the planes have crossed into american territory in pearl harbor as the attack occurred then well probably so i would say well what about you know when they just left japan you know the 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 planes uh, ships does that count as the armed attack that's more controversial and most controversial perhaps is when the leaders have given the order is that when the armed attack has occurred when those japanese g- leaders gave the order to attack pearl harbor so that's the zone of interpretation uh, for self-defense especially. Mm-hmm. Um, for humanitarian intervention, uh, it's trickier because in the negotiations over the definition of aggression, this manifest qualifier that I told you about, that only manifest violations of the UN charter amount to aggression, that was built in, in part to resolve the humanitarian intervention debate that couldn't be resolved among diplomatic delegations. With some saying that Kosovo would be a legitimate use of force, and it wouldn't amount to aggression because um, it, it wasn't um, manifestly illegal. Why is that? Because you can make an argument that um, it was done in order to, um, to, uh, um, you know, vindicate international norms such as the protection of human life, human rights norms, things, things like this. So, I, I actually think that if a court would be the one assessing that a legitimate, proper court, like the International Criminal Court or a regional court, African Court of Justice and Human Rights, something like this, then they could sort out what's a legitimate humanitarian intervention and what's a pretextual land grab, for example. So, so uh, that's a, a gray area, but I think probably most states would say humanitarian intervention, like Kosovo, is an act of aggression. I, I believe that probably most states, maybe not some Western states, would think that. And finally, on the de minimis front, um, the big question, like I say, is like these attacks you're seeing now on hospital infrastructure by, um, you know, hackers and cyber attackers uh, that are attributable to states, you know, Chinese, Russian, Iranian, um, North Korean, where hospital records are deleted or held hostage, and then people die as a result of that that's a third gray area that i'd like to see you know transparent reasoned judicial interpretation based on rules of evidence and procedure that that's how i think these questions should be resolved
1: Th- thanks no and that leads to another question uh about uh, these technological developments in warfare uh in the book you include a question uh can the law keep up and so i guess my question to you is is the law keeping up Or Mm -hmm. how can it keep up?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is the law that has been, this is a very conservative definition of aggression and a very conservative distinction between aggression and self-defense. It's based on primarily the Nuremberg precedent, so the London Charter and the decision of the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg and the successor decisions, you know, the doctor's trial, the uh, industrialist's trial, And the Tokyo trials, Um, the 1974 definition of aggression, which gives you that list of acts that amount to aggression that you were referring to before, you know, attacking the armed forces of another state, allowing your state to be used as a staging ground uh, for an act or an armed attack by another state. Um, And then the uh, ICC um, treaty, which included aggression in, in its language in 1998. But without spelling out precisely what aggression would mean in the modern world, I think that these rules have managed to capture all sorts of uses of force over the last hundred years and that they're good enough uh, through judicial interpretation to capture the uses of force that are emerging as well. I don't think we need a completely new thought out crime of aggression for cyber
1: war, for example. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Noah. Um, and so something else I wanted to, to talk a little bit about because of my own interest in, in state responsibility for um, international unlawful acts, um, which I, I don't know if I got that exactly right, but the International Law Commission uses that terminology. Um, you know, you talk about the importance of holding leaders responsible for the crime of aggression as leaders are most responsible. And um, is state responsibility, does it have its deficiencies? Uh, is there a place for state responsibility in justice proceedings, perhaps uh, concurrently with individual criminal responsibility? You know, of course, there was some overlap between the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia and the International Court of Justices Bosnia versus Serbia case. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned, these, this is a particular interest of mine. So I, I was wondering, yeah, where are the deficiencies are and is there a place for both of them?
2: Yeah. Um, okay, there's a place for state responsibility, especially for kind of tortious kind of um, wrongs. So, you know, one state is polluting a a river, the Danube, for example, upstream from another state, uh, and uh, they need to resolve their uh, dispute about uh, whether that's allowed or whether it's out of bounds. Um, But I believe that when it comes to prosecution of, um, atrocities that the focus should be on individuals it doesn't mean not to have state responsibility but what I'm very concerned about is what happened in Iraq after Saddam Hussein um, uh, um, you know lost and was kicked out of Kuwait where these sanctions against the state of Iraq just harmed the poor people of Iraq who are mm-hmm. being victimized by their leader as well and um, And Saddam Hussein, of course, was rich with all sorts of uh, finances all over the place, was leading a perfectly um, luxurious life, but his people were really suffering. So I'm really concerned about collective responsibility um, when it comes to these things. Um, I'd rather have more focused, targeted individual responsibility. And I also think that individual responsibility properly captures the social dynamic of war, where, you know, I was referring to the Herman Goering quote earlier, where it's leaders that bring their populations to war, not the reverse. I, I think that that's wrong, that it's the populations that drive the leaders to express their latent aggressive. There's kind of hostile, belligerent tinder in a society, which the leader then harnesses more often than not. It's the pyromaniac that lights the flame, that needs to be targeted, and it's easier to arrest individuals than to constrain entire states. So I think there's a lot of reasons to focus regulation of aggression on the leaders themselves, not the entire state.
1: I think that makes sense. It's something I will have to uh, think about as I continue to, to think about and, and evolve or uh, develop my thoughts on uh, state responsibility. Um, Jeff,
2: back, back yeah. to your thoughts on state responsibility, though. You were talking about the connections between genocide and um, war uh, earlier. And, um, you know, there is a social dynamic to these things, you know, as you saw with the capital riot, or the Rwanda genocide, or these collective actions, which should be captured somehow legally. Do you have any sense of kind of how that collective dimension would be best captured? Do, do you think... Like the Rwanda genocide was first and foremost a collective act or an act of leaders that were uh, riling up the population?
1: I do think, in general, um, that genocide is an act instigated. By leaders, um, you know, through uh, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, what I really do think are collective forms of of manipulation, uh, use of propaganda. Uh, You know, one of the things I'm interested in working on first in this project on the comparison of war and genocide is a direct comparison of war and genocide propagandas um, to see if there are commonalities in how um, you know leaders are able to stoke. you know, violence to, uh, socialize, uh, you know, the, uh, to socialize killing people. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, you know, I, my thinking I, on, on state responsibility, um, is primarily around the need for states to provide restitution, uh, or reparation for, uh, you know, the crimes that were, were committed Sort of in the name of the state, even if it's not, even if a state, I guess, can't commit a crime, if that makes sense. Um, and you know, I, I there's there's definitely concerns I have about even if such decisions are made, especially then if leaders aren't hold, held accountable. Um, you know, even if the ICJ say finds a ruling uh, against Myanmar, um, you know, there's already been an injunction to stop the violence, um, but to you know how to enforce its decisions um in terms of you know i i my understanding if i'm re- recalling correctly is that um serbia has not fully made um repair for uh its failure to prevent genocide at srebrenica in bosnia uh and i'm just not sure how um these kinds of decisions can be enforced uh, sorry i'm like getting uh, rambling a little bit here um but these are yeah these are just some of the thoughts that i'm having about um you know, how we can hopefully in some ways prevent future crimes, but also to uh, repair crimes that have already been committed. Um, And yeah,
2: you're really onto something with the focus on the propaganda though, the comparison of the propaganda for genocide, propaganda for war. Uh, And when it comes to um, look what happened with Hitler. So Hitler mobilized the Treaty of Versailles and the reparations when speaking at the beer halls to rouse up kind of belligerent anti-Semitic sentiment and mobilize the German populace, you know, the far right of the German people against the, 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 this external enemy, these people that were sucking German funds out in order to uh, rebuild their, their countries after World War I. And, you know, the Germans found this completely unfair and the economy was tanking. And this was a mobilizing force for Hitler, these reparations they were deserved you know these victims in france and in various places uh, that were demolished by german aggression in world war 1 the individuals were destitute and they needed help and who should pay it but you know the, the country that caused the problem in the first place but there's a connection there it's a, when there's an external threat like that against an entire nation or people um, it's creating a scenario where, um, leaders can come and and, and, and try to mobilize their populations against it. So there's a risk of, of considering an entire people accountable for an act of war or an act of genocide.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you know, which comes back to, uh, you know, your, what you mentioned about the sanctions on Iraq in the nineties again, as well. So, um, And, you know, some of the things that you're talking about, um, with Goering also reminds me of, uh, if I'm also, if I'm recalling correctly, it's been a while since I've looked at Mein Kampf, but, uh, you know, Hitler in his foreign policy chapter, uh, talked about propaganda and, um, never allowing yourself to moralize the enemy, come up with, you know, these, uh, these slogans and just repeat, 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 never, um, show any sign of weakness, uh, and that will keep your population mobilized. Um, And uh, I think there will be some similarities uh, in in the propaganda when I get to these comparisons.
2: There's a very good book by my friend Greg Gordon about incitement to uh, genocide. Um, And uh, yeah, definitely. I I think that this kind of the patterns of propagandizing and um, um, mobilization are very important to follow and to criminalize. These things should be prosecuted. Uh, as well maybe this is going to uh, create an early deterrent effect i'm not thinking that the icc is going to send in the troops and arrest you know vladimir putin or something like that this is not how i think it's going to play out you're talking about enforcement before what i think is going to happen is the first aggression case will probably be a self referral so what i'm expecting is that a country it could be russia but it doesn't look like it now or another country let's just imagine the scenario of russia where there's resistance to putin um, there's a internal division um, and opponents within Russia uh, managed to um, undermine his, uh, his his political clout and perhaps isolate him geographically at the same time um, it's possible that a state with wide um, uh, um, you know extra um, you know jurisdictional laws will uh, participate in arrest or maybe they'll hand him over like Serbia handed over milosevic Um, You know, you can see now in Sudan, uh, Sudan is handing over Omar al-Bashir for trial after many years of him being the president. I think the first aggression case will be probably a self-referral and an arrest by the successor regime. And that will get the ball rolling as it did with genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes at the ICC at first.
1: That's really interesting, and I, I hope you're right, because um, it also makes me think of uh, Uganda and the and the self referral as well. Um, and so, yeah, I would I would I would like to see that happen. Um, but uh, you know, I want to wind down here with you. I don't want to take too much of your time, and so I want to close by reading from the end of your book, uh, which also brings us in some ways back to the first question about optimism and so on. And Mm -hmm. you, you close your book by writing quote, whether history is a mountain to climb, a battle between cynicism and idealism, or a series of accumulating precedents updated when the crystalline structure snaps into a new configuration. I know Forenz is right. The forces of hatred and injustice are encroaching and our best hope is a coordinated global legal response. What began as an idealistic dream has culminated in a surprisingly functional, promising legal innovation. The crime of aggression will not get us to the top of the mountain, vanquish cynicism, or put an end to war. It is something more modest, a sensible step in the right direction, a memorial to the victims of a violent century, a reminder of humanity's higher aspiration that, are, that only our reason can save us from ourselves. Uh, I mean, it's uh, beautifully written for one thing. Um, but I do ask, you know, if the crime of aggression is a step in the right direction, what is or is there a next step?
2: Well, maybe I'll tell you what Foren said to me. Um, he was starting to lose hope. Uh, we were walking in Princeton um, at one of these negotiations over the definition of the crime of aggression uh, in the you know before two thousand and ten, and he he said this to me. I've been pushing this rock up a hill. I know I'll not see the top of the hill. I know that I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. I push the rock a little bit further up the hill. Knowing that there will be times when I get kicked in the head and it slips back. You can see that Ferenz here um, is is mixing up kind of his memories of World War II and and this time now. That happens too. Pick up the rock and keep pushing it. And if there are enough people who keep pushing it long enough, we'll reach the top of the mountain, he says. Now, I'm not so sure that history is a mountain to climb. But I do think this idea has been exceedingly resilient—the idea of having individual criminal responsibility for aggressive war—it's lasted for hundreds of years in various forms, and it keeps coming back. And I think that as technology becomes more individualized, where you can attack an individual with a drone or with a cyber attack that wipes out their 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 online life, their bank accounts, their um, existence—really—it's going to become more and more individualized warfare and regulation should also become more individualized. And that's where I think the hope of this new legal idea uh, comes from for me, is this idea that um, it it matches with the sociological dynamics of warfare that are emerging. Um, And I hope that countries and um, organizations of countries uh, and the media and religious groups uh, learn about the crime of aggression and, and try to um, enforce this idea that some uses of force just cannot be justified as self-defense or humanitarian intervention, that some stuff is aggression and it should be condemned.
1: Thank you, Noah. And, uh, and thank you so much for your time. Um, before I do let you go, I know that you're going to be um, sort of off the radar for a bit, but uh, is there anything you're currently working on that our listeners should uh, watch out for?
2: Well, I'm, I'm working on having these two new babies uh, <laughs> d- delivered next week. It's very exciting. Um, uh, my partner, Alana, Kwan, and I are expecting two kids. But, yeah, I've been working on um, self-defense in domestic law in the United States and Canada and, and trying to understand cases like the um, Kyle Rittenhouse case and in Canada the Peter Kill case uh, where a military reservist um, stalked and killed um an unarmed indigenous man in his driveway. We thought was stealing his truck.
1: He was acquitted at
2: trial. So it's these cases that I think overlap very closely. That's that's my new thing.
1: Great. Well, oh, um, and is is that uh, an article based, or is this a, another book you're writing?
2: It's a series of articles on um, the evolution, historical evolution of Canada's self-defense laws compared to the American laws. Um, you know, the standard ground laws in the United States. I was teaching in Florida before I came back to Canada. So, um, I, and I think the Canadian laws have become in some ways even more expansive, even more permissive of do-it-yourself self-defense than the Florida standard ground law. So I've been kind of putting up the alarm, sounding the alarm uh, on that issue.
1: Great. Well, thank you for your work, Noah. And I look forward to to reading these when they come out. Um good luck next week. Congratulations. And thanks uh, thanks again for joining me.
2: What a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me on the show.